Have you ever allowed your imagination to run wild about the world of work? To wonder what would happen if we tore up all the rules and started again? Welcome to Series 4 of What If, a podcast from the CIPD's work magazine that dares to ask the previously unthinkable. I'm Jenny Roper, editor of Work Magazine, and over six podcasts, I and my co-host Katie Jacobs will be asking experts to dispense with the here and now, embrace the art of the possible, and ponder what if. What if there was no employment law? Everyone got cancelled, or we did away with experts. What if you could brainwash staff? Would you do it? Are you all ready? Perhaps without knowing it. It's a question that surfaced with real force in the late noughties, with interest in behavioural science exploding thanks to Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein's 2008 book, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth and Happiness. Hot on this book's heels came the UK Coalition Government's Behavioural Insights Team, known as the Nudge Unit. It was founded in 2010 to improve social outcomes using low-cost interventions. Notable successes include electoral participation, pensions auto-enrolment and organ donation. The latter two interventions operating on the principle that people are less likely to opt out of something than to opt in. According to proponents, nudge works because our brains operate on two different systems. One provides the automatic reflex responses that remind us to duck if something is heading for us. The other controls conscious thought. Nudging recognises that unconscious system one thinking often overrides conscious rational thought when making decisions, a concept that won Thaler the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2017. Whether deployed explicitly or knowingly as nudges or not, such prompts are everywhere in the workplace. From encouraging people to move about more during the working day, to reminding them to recycle and turn lights off, to nudging them to practice better cyber security. Such examples sound innocent and well-meaning enough. But is all of this activity, deliberately utilised by employers or not, ethical? And does HR participating in choice architecture become more problematic in an ever more digital, for many employees hybrid, working world, where employers are able to track, monitor, even read employees' minds? To help me explore this, I spoke to Nita Farahani, bioscience professor at Duke University. Nita is author of The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology, and she served on Barack Obama's Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. I also spoke to Nick Chater, Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School. Nick has served on the advisory board of the government's Behavioural Insights team. He co-created eight series of Radio 4's The Human Zoo and has authored more than 200 research papers, including one last year with George Lowenstein, suggesting the nudge movement has, in some quarters, lost its way. So let's start there. Where does the application of nudge techniques risk straying into the counterproductive, even unethical, in today's world? Here's Nick. The concern with the way that behavioural sciences, people in psychology and behavioural economics and uh, other social sciences have been thinking about nudge as a tool, is it can give you the sense as a politician or a policymaker that the problem you're dealing with is fundamentally a problem of individual behaviour. And so you don't need to worry so much about changing the, as it were, the game. So for example, in climate, of course, individually, yes, we should worry about our carbon impact. But realistically, the impact that each of us working independently can have is very small because we're part of this complicated system. 
think there are lots and lots of effective uses of nudges in places where they're not particularly effective, but are promoted with genuine good intention. But I think there are cases where we should be cynical. An example that, that George and I were particularly struck by is the fact that BP is the company that originated the idea of a personal carbon footprint and had a big ad campaign and had a website where you can calculate your personal carbon footprint and had helpful recommendations like, it's time to go on a low-carbon diet. So what BP are doing there, going back 20 or 30 years, is saying, of course, it's a very serious problem and we're worried about it. And it's a problem for individuals. So you individuals sort yourselves out. So another example from the US would be the guns don't kill people, people kill people. You know, you don't, why do we need these gun laws? It's people who are the problem. We just need to just sort them out. It's a classic strategy of taking a, a sort of system problem and saying, oh, no, we don't have to change the system. The system is fine. Especially interests, often powerful, very wealthy special interests who benefit from the status quo will be very keen to promote that view. It's not too difficult to see how this more cynical use of nudge or individualising a problem could throw up issues of ethical employer conduct. The organisation keen not to pass on profits via pay rises, for example, but rather place the emphasis on financial advice and employees' own prudence to get themselves through a cost-of-living crisis, or the business reluctant to make structural change to reduce its environmental impact. But to interrogate the central premise of this episode, can nudge ever really amount to brainwashing? That is secretly compelling an individual to do something in a way that they have no power to resist and wouldn't necessarily agree with were they more aware of the influence being exerted. Nick is not so sure. What is sinister for most of us is the sense that we're being nudged in ways that we're not aware of and we may not want. So as consumers, when we find ourselves finding it extremely difficult to cancel our subscriptions or something or difficult to, to move from one product to another, lots of our behaviours, there are external parties who want us to do one thing, not because it's good for us, but because it's good for them. And so in the case of an employer, if the agenda for the employer is, you know, I want you to all work harder for less money, then you know, clearly that's going to be something that the you know, employee isn't going to agree with. But um, I think employers have to always be very aware of the fact that their employees are smart people and any kind of nudging that's going on is likely to be to be spotted and resented. Any sense of manipulation is something we truly hate. The sort of fundamental aspect of human social behavior is that we want to be dealing with people and we want to be dealing with organizations who treat us in a way that is transparent and is mutually beneficial so that the organization has to be saying, we're playing it like this, this is the deal. So that sounds all right, doesn't it? Nita, by contrast, is more wary of the practice of nudging in general and our ability to resist it in an ever more digitally all-encompassing closed-loop online world. On the one hand, nudging people to engage with more critical thinking skills, I think, is a favourable thing to do. So, for example, if you're on a platform and about to share information and it pops up with a message that says, would you like to read this article first? That's nudging you to actually engage critical thinking skills rather than to automatically act reflexively. Where it starts to get dangerous, I think, is who decides what is healthy or who decides what is good for you. And the normative ordering of decision-making where the automatic reflexive actions of individuals are being in some ways hijacked through nudge theory based on somebody else's value system. And that value system doesn't necessarily align with human flourishing. That's when I worry most about nudge, you know, being more in system one rather than system two thinking. We've seen where that goes. 
CEOs with tech companies, primarily that has been an attempt to nudge people to stay on devices, to engage with content in ways that distract them and erode their overall critical thinking. Nita is also less convinced than Nick of employees' ability to spot this kind of activity, deployed covertly and with questionable intent, and their innate intolerance for it. After all, culture has long been seen as a critical part of the HR toolkit for a reason. Small signals and seemingly superficial elements of the working environment can add up to a persuasive impact. Just look at the kinds of ride-or-die attitudes engendered at many tech companies over the years. Organizations are constantly facing turnover and challenges of having loyalty to a particular employer, and that creates a lot of inefficiencies within the system. So there are incentives and powerful ones for employers to try to induce greater conformity or allegiance to the mantra of the company. It does become a workplace that is at risk of trying to cognitively shape people toward drinking the Kool-Aid, toward towing the line and to being more conformist. It's really possible to cognitively shape people in a workplace in ways that could then undermine having a whistleblower come forward. There's a lot of ways that cognitive shaping can happen in the workplace in ways that could undermine both the safety within the workplace and the safety of society more generally from the products that are being developed. What is making it ever more possible for workplaces to cognitively shape employees to a concerning degree, Nita explains, is an increased ability to intrude into their very thoughts, with the question becoming not just what if you could brainwash staff, but what if you could also get into their heads first? Reports of employers using sophisticated software to monitor employees have proliferated over recent years. Companies can now use webcams to collect data and eye movement to track what an employee is paying attention to or capture things like tone of voice to measure engagement. Often the intention, at least, is benevolent, with recent research showing someone's stress levels can be tracked via mouse use and typing patterns, for example. What many will be less aware of is just how sophisticated neurotechnology is becoming, tech that directly monitors brain activity, and how embedded in workplaces it already is. Right now, most of the technology that's on the market picks up very simple brain states. So it's not mind reading in the way we think about it, which is literally what I'm thinking and feeling, but it is mind reading in the sense of picking up broad brain states like, are you paying attention? Are you tired? Is your mind wandering? Are you bored? Are you engaged? So kind of your emotional states overall. What's coming is the next wave in the next two to three years is instead of what has been brain sensors embedded into hard hats or baseball caps or something that has to go across your forehead, are brain sensors embedded into earbuds and headphones. So multifunctional devices that are everyday technology or a smartwatch that can pick up your brain activity as it goes from your brain down your arm to your wrist and picks up your intention to swipe or type or move. Then we start to get a lot closer to mind reading because it has to pick up your intention to type out a word. It has to pick up your intention to swipe or to move. And I think that the thing that has surprised most people is I'm not describing a future world, even though, of course, it'll be much broader at scale. I'm describing a world that has already arrived. Already, 
There are more than 5,000 companies worldwide that are using a technology called SmartCap, and they track fatigue levels directly from the brain. So they're interpreting brainwave activity to see whether or not a truck driver is wide awake or starting to veer into microsleep. Other companies are selling enterprise solutions to enable employers to track whether a person is paying attention or their mind is wandering. And interestingly, I was presenting about this at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and I had a CEO of a global company come up to me afterwards to say, you know, we would serve as a perfect use case for you in your talks because we've already trialed on more than a thousand employees and we've made management level decisions, for example, about whether to allow people to work from home or work in the office because of what their attention levels and distraction levels show depending on where they're working. That's in some ways chilling, I think, because it really starts to create that kind of workplace panopticon. A person is being tracked not just for whether they pose a particular risk to other people or themselves from a safety perspective while they're driving a commercial vehicle, but literally, are you paying attention and what are you paying attention to during the workday? In her book, Nita argues that a public discussion on this is long overdue and lawmakers should establish brain protections as they would for any other area of personal liberty. The ability of tech companies, politicians and employers alike to gather this much information on what we're thinking or feeling is perhaps unsettling enough. But again, returning to our headline question around brainwashing staff, is the even bigger concern that this ability could combine powerfully with our susceptibility to being nudged? Nita thinks it is. I worry a lot about what is increasingly becoming a closed loop world. And by that, I mean picking up biometric data from individuals, right? Their heart rate, their temperature, their sleep patterns, and now their brainwave activity. And also being able to control the digital environment that the person is interacting in. I think a lot of people already recognize how, for example, social media platforms with their algorithms can pick up what a person likes or doesn't like and subtly shape them and send them down potentially an echo chamber or a tunnel. We're only seeing information from one viewpoint and you're not seeing a diversity of thoughts, a diversity of perspectives on a particular issue. And that could be as dangerous as scientific misinformation or health misinformation that makes you believe, for example, that a global pandemic isn't real to political brainwashing where you're only hearing from a particular viewpoint. It's very easy to put people in those tunnels. And when you can calibrate it precisely to a person's biometric reaction, I think it becomes more frightening, right? Where your digital environment that you're interacting with can be calibrated precisely to evoke specific types of emotional reactions or selective attention or put you into an automatic and reflexive way of thinking rather than a critical way of thinking. I do worry that the precision of this kind of brainwashing in the wrong hands will become powerful. So without guardrails around this kind of closed loop world that's increasingly emerging, I do worry that people's ability to think freely is becoming more and more constrained. And as a result, their ability to flourish and to develop independent thought and to even start to cultivate what is a true self-identity is being undermined. All more than a bit terrifying. As such, it's easy to see why Nita is so passionate about neuro rights in the workplace and beyond. 
But to take the discussion in a slightly more positive direction, where does she think such neurotechnologies and employers' subsequent ability to nudge in a more sophisticated manner could be used for good? I think that there are good ways to use the technology in ways that can empower people. And so I've been arguing that we need to recognize a right to cognitive liberty, a right to self-determination over our brains and mental experiences, which means both a right to access information about our own brains, to enhance them and change them if we choose to do so, but also to be safeguarded against intrusions into our mental privacy and our freedom of thought. And what that would mean in a workplace setting would be encouraging potentially employers to make available technology to employees, give the employees the ability to see, aha, when I am surfing on social media, the ability to re-engage with my work takes, you know, 15 minutes, even though I thought that it was a very quick hit. In limited context, I think it could be permissible for employers to gain access to information when they disclose it in advance and get consent from their employees. And those very limited circumstances, I think, pertain to safety for employees and safety for society more generally. And then I think it makes sense to explore opportunities around cognitive ergonomics, that is designing a workplace that is responsive to an employee, so long as employees opt into it. And again, the data is kept just for optimizing their health and well-being in the workplace and isn't used for any other purpose. It's not accessible to the employer. It's not used for hiring or firing or promotion decisions about the person. In those kinds of settings, it does something very important, which is it helps to restore trust between employees and employers. Sticking with this more optimistic debate, where does Nick Chater think employees could, while avoiding the pitfall of individualising a systemic problem, be making more deliberate, valuable use of nudge in the workplace? So one of the things I think about nudges is that none of the nudges that have been successful are things that no one's ever thought of before. People have been defaulting people into things. They've been telling us what everyone else does. I mean, this sort of number one New York Times bestseller type of thing, making it, oh, right, everyone else is reading it. I must read it too. So it's not that these are methods that have never been thought of before. And, and you don't need to have a behavioral scientist to tell you to do them. But on the other hand, the virtue of the nudge approach is that it sort of gives you a nice set of list of things to think about. So you, know, you haven't really thought through what your message is going to be or how you're going to communicate it, then it, you think about telling people what everyone else is doing, what are other companies doing, you know, what is the new normal. And it doesn't just have to be what people are actually doing, it's also what people want. So if it's the case that most people in your company, it has to be true, you're not going to get very far if you start to deceive people, but if it's true that, that most people in your company actually do want to value the target of reducing carbon by uh, half by you know, 2030 or something, and we're, if, if we're all behind it, that makes a difference. That makes me think, oh, right, well, it's not just me. I, you know, we might really do this because we're all really serious about it. And so that sort of sense of opening up our collective minds and giving a sense of collective purpose, I think that's, that's potentially quite important. Nick points to the experience of COVID as a great example of what can be achieved simply by framing an issue in relation to the collective good. In stark contrast to accusations doing the rounds at the time that behavioural scientists were holding too much sway in discussions on how to respond to the science, with behavioural fatigue apparently cited by nudge experts as a reason not to lock down too early, the UK and other countries' success in encouraging people to stick with lockdowns was ultimate testament to the power of nudge, says Nick. 
And I don't think the idea of behavioural fatigue came out of the behavioural sciences at all, and it didn't come out of the nudge perspective. I don't know where it came from. It's a bit of a mystery, but it, I know that um, some of the behavioural scientists who are you know, involved with these issues were as mystified as anyone else as to where behavioural fatigue had come from. It's fundamentally a, a flawed idea. For example, if you think about toothbrushing, no one would say, well, don't get people to brush their teeth with their children because they'll just run out of steam. They'll be completely, completely lost the plot, can't pick up another toothbrush by the time they get to the adults. In, in most things, if you want to encourage us to do something, such as having our children clean their teeth as adults, you want to start young, start early, and you want to just establish this as a habit. But I think one area where the behavioral sciences did do a very good job was... And again, this is not something that one couldn't have thought of otherwise, but it's, it's stressing the, the collective nature of our response. So rather than saying to people, for your own health, you should stay locked down, which is a, always a tricky message because people can think, well, I'm going to make the judgment myself then. I'm like, why shouldn't I? And if I'm you know, young and healthy, then you know, the, the argument might be, that's well, perfectly fine. Why should I be locked down? But that's not really the argument, and it wasn't the argument that was used. And the argument was we collectively have to help each other just keep this disease under control because vulnerable groups were massively disadvantaged otherwise. That sense of a collective effort, I think, is very important. So, to conclude, can the huge power and potential of nudge ever be used for real bad, for manipulating people, even brainwashing them? Nick reiterates his sense of probably not, explaining how slippery the concept of brainwashing is psychologically and indeed, similarly, the definition of mind reading. The way our minds work is by a sort of continual process of improvisation. So if I'm answering your question now, the thoughts that are related to that are coming to my mind and they're driving the system for controlling my tongue and lips and so on. You know, that creation of that language in the moment is something you could catch earlier. So before I actually speak, in principle, there's brain activity which will correlate with that. But what you're not doing is capturing, as it were, all the other sort of memories and thoughts and attitudes I have. And I think one reason you can't do that is they're simply not active. And also, for that matter, they're also very, very inconsistent. You can't, as it were, do a scan of my brain and say, right, well, I know everything about you now. Essentially, probably never be possible, but it's certainly very, very far from being possible with any technology we can conceive of. And brainwashing is quite an extreme thing. In fact, brainwashing as a concept is a bit mysterious. It's not really clear that there is such a thing um, that you can, as it were, directly instill a particular mindset in somebody. I think nudging is much, much more light to touch than, than brainwashing. And it really isn't aiming at um, changing your mind. It's just aiming to prod your behavior in a particular direction. Now, of course, when your behavior changes, that can also mean your the thoughts going to run along behind. So you, you might be nudged to recycle more. And you might start to think, well, oh, recycling is a very good idea because here I am doing it. So it's not that it may have no effect on your thoughts, but it, it's usually having an effect on your thoughts, which is fairly transparent to you. And if the nudges themselves are not hidden, then I think we're in quite safe territory. The question of brainwashing is a little bit different from the question of monitoring. So there's one question is, what are people doing? And perhaps also, what are they thinking? Another is, can I change what they're doing and thinking? Um, and particularly what they're thinking, I suppose, with brainwashing. And I think it's certainly true that the more our lives are digitized, and the more of that digital information is being recorded, then it's certainly going to be true that, that our employers are able to both see what we're doing and make more inferences about it. And I think we need to be worried about that, actually. It can be helpful. So undoubtedly, employers can use that for the good, but it is also potentially quite oppressive. Mind reading and brainwashing might not yet be possible then, in the sorts of ways dystopian sci-fi classically depicts. 
but there is nonetheless much we should be vigilant about in a brave new hybrid world of working, where so many of our interactions are digitised and the opportunity to collect huge amounts of data on our every move and thought is vast. The rapid advances underway in neurotechnology, advances that will be cropping up in all workplaces very soon, call for careful thoughts around the concept of cognitive liberty and safeguarding this. But there is much opportunity for nudge theory, along with devices that track how our brains function, to be used in empowering ways, to help employees make the right choices and work effectively in a way that benefits them and the employer. Trying to escape to at least some degree brainwashing staff is arguably a fool's errand anyway, Nita points out. Whether they think they're explicitly doing it or not, it's everything from signs in the workplace, messaging, core values that they repeat throughout the workplace, to how and when they schedule meetings, what they set as the default workday on their calendaring systems that they use, what they stock in their break rooms in terms of food and snacks and coffee, whether there are nap rooms that they have for people to take rest breaks with the expectation that they'll work longer hours because there's a place for them to rest, what their ordering in policy is and reimbursement for dinners with a suggestion about whether people should work longer hours within the workplace. There are a million different nudges that I think are incorporated into the workplace. And those are almost always designed with an intention to shape and change the way employees behave. Maybe what's not happening is there isn't somebody sitting down and comprehensively looking across all of those policies to say, what is our goal for nudging employees in a strategic and holistic way? But most policies in the workplace, I think, are designed to try to nudge people's behaviors in one way or another. Every choice made then about how a workplace should look, feel and operate has an effect on employees, intended or otherwise. So employers might as well take the ball by the horns. They might as well consciously decide the impact they want to have because they're going to influence how people behave and perhaps think anyway. Why not use those powers for good? You have been listening to the What If podcast, brought to you by the CIPD's Work magazine. To find out more about how the CIPD is dedicated to better work and working lives, visit cipd.co.uk. And don't forget to check out the rest of the What If series from your podcast provider or the peoplemanagement.co.uk website.